guys, what's going on? Welcome back to Serial at Midnight. My name is Heath Holland, and I'm joined for a a noir-stained conversation by a master of crime fiction himself, Max Allen Collins. Max, welcome back. Oh, it's always great to see you, Heath. It's, it's, it, it's just like I saw you yesterday. It's it's almost like we just recorded a video, and we're doing this one right after. It's almost. It's, it's so little time seems to have passed. Oh, I forgot to change my shirt. I know, I did too. Damn. Should we go change our shirts? Should no, we do no, that? no, no, no. We... <laughs> so we were talking about, uh, like, we should just be transparent because the audience will see right through it. We just finished a video about our film, our the, the Dark Side of Cinema box set from Kino Lorber. And we were like, you Correct. know, we should elaborate. We should do our favorite film noir because, and that is actually, Max, that's an often requested video for me that I've never done because it's daunting to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I could go, uh, I, I think what we have to do is we have to do, you know, we, we have to do some follow-ups. Like, I, I, as I mentioned to you, perhaps this was off camera, I had anything that was color I took out of this list. And yet, I think some of the most noir films, like Vertigo, for example, mm -hmm. are, you know, are in fact film noir. And this this comes down to the whole discussion between is film noir a cinematic style or is is film noir about subject matter about the grimness and about crime and i'm loose you know i i like to like a lot of movies so i i don't right. feel like well i can't like this one because it doesn't have it doesn't check all the boxes uh but everything i think everything i i narrowed this down to checks all the boxes just yeah. fine my, I think mine does too. There's one that I'm like, ah, does it? But I'm going to, we'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah. And it's important too, that people know there are dozens and there's hundreds really of great film noir entries that you should seek out. Um, just because we're naming ours here does not mean that this is the end of that conversation. We, my list would look different tomorrow than it does today. I really feel because there's so many great films and where do they line up in my brain there i mean it's hard to it's hard to pin this stuff down so i'm gonna throw it to you what would you say do you want to do we decide we're going to start with number one and then go down or count I think up we'll go, i think we'll go to number one because that allows us to cheat a little bit when we get down into five maybe we'll be a six you know and so i'll start with kiss me deadly which is absolutely my favorite film noir now anybody who knows anything about me knows what a Mickey Splain fan I am. And this is such a fascinating movie because it's, in, in today's terms, a deconstruction of my camera. And Robert Aldrich and his screenwriter, uh, A.I. Bezzarides, nobody, no, no mystery writer was more, actually no popular writer was more popular at this point in, in the 50s than this writer. Uh, virtually, virtually uh, paperback originals were done to fill the market that he revealed this market of tough guy plus sex you know the sex plus violence that he did and then the first person narrative that he was such a master of and kiss me deadly was uh, the first mystery novel that i know of to make the certainly tough guy mystery novel to make the new york times bestseller list so it was a big deal this was a big so Robert Aldrich and Bezzarides had to, who did not like what Mickey represented to them, they, they, they were assigned this task, so they, they had to not alienate the Mike Hammer, Mickey Spillane fans, but they, they, they felt they were doing, I think, 
undermining undermining Spillane as they as they exploited him. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, when I was a when I was a kid, when I was in junior high and saw this movie on TV, I had no idea that Mike Hammer was being portrayed as a bad guy. I thought he was just perfectly cool. I wasn't hip enough to understand just where this was coming from. But the movie has incredible visual style. And of course, that that's uh, due to uh, Ernest Laszlo, who was a great, a great cinematographer. And one of the things I've seen people talk about this movie, but one of the things that always struck me almost from the very beginning was how many X's there are in this movie. There are X's everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are X designs. And X having that double meaning of death and kisses, because you'd put XXXXX at the bottom of your, your, your love letters you're sending. So I thought that was a brilliant visual uh, motif that they, they did. And I see some very, very smart people talking about this movie and don't even notice the, the X's. Uh, but there are a lot of weird little quirky things for example, the, the women in this movie are all attractive, but they're all they're all just a little wrong. Just a li- they, they don't look like your standard Hollywood, uh, if you excuse the, the phrase, bimbos. I mean, these were or starlets or whatever. These look like real people. These these women look like real human beings you might see, you know, uh, in a restaurant or on the street. Gabby, Gabby Rogers being one of them, and uh, the the Velda character uh, played by, well, there's also Marilyn Carr, who is kind of a Marilyn Monroe type. She's the only one I would say fits the stereotype of, of, of 1955 femininity in movies. But uh, you have Cloris Leachman in her first role, an Iowan, I will, will mention. But this, this movie is so beautifully, tightly written and so beautifully played, and the ang- the camera angles, all of that stuff. This is, to me, the ultimate film noir. You said a couple of things I want to follow up on. One of them was you were talking about how it's not necessarily gl- the women aren't glamorous. I think that so someone mentioned this. I would love to give credit where it's due, but I don't remember exactly who said that. But someone recently said that both noir and B westerns have a blue collar aspect to them Mm -hmm. that make that makes them so approachable they really do feel like movies um that are relatable and like you 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 can really project yourself into these films um another thing i wanted to ask you is so growing up when you did was it common for young children you know boys to watch noir films these kinds like a crime movie i know you did but were you was your peer group watching movies like that on television at the same time no, only to the degree that my enthusiasm bled over into them. So I, uh, you know, if you were hanging around with me, you learned to read Mickey Spillane. I mean, that was just that yeah. was just how how I rolled. And of course, I was right, starting to write my own stuff. I mean, as early as junior high, and passing you know passing them around to my friends. And so I was exposed. I was getting them exposed, sort of second or third hand to this stuff. But remember. Uh, the pro- in the in the late 50s and very early 60s there was a private eye craze on TV there was first there was the western craze with gunsmoke and maverick and all of that stuff but then came peter gunn and you know the thin man and Johnny 77 Staccato. sunset strip and yep. you know and, and so we were very much into those and so anybody 
who was like me who who liked to look at the literary source and most of these had a literary source uh they you know would would get that get pulled into reading hard-boiled mystery fiction uh i mean for example 77 sunset strip with kooky and his hair and and all the cars and everything that did emanate from roy huggins's uh mystery he had written a mystery novel called the the double take and he had written a bunch of short stories about stuart bailey the character that ephraim symbolist played and so they collected some of the short stories in a paperback and so in 1959 a lot of teenagers young teenagers like me were buying that that book and reading very traditional 1940s uh private eye noir uh fiction Gotcha. The real crime there is that shows like 77 Sunset Strip and Bourbon Street Beat and uh, <laughs> Hawaiian Eye will never get, they'll probably never get a legitimate uh, disc release just because of the music issues that tie those things up. But if you look, you can find them. I've got all those shows on a hard drive somewhere. So, well, they um, did release Peter Gunn, and Peter Gunn yes, is a did. really good show because that's Blake Edwards. And he 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 directed uh, any number of them himself. They released Peter Gunn. They released Johnny Staccato. They released that's a good one. Mister Lucky um, has a DVD release. So there are a few, but Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. I, I hear it's never coming. Maybe maybe one day. Let's let's hope. Warner Brothers. Yeah, Warner, that's right. Um, I'm gonna go with a big one. I'm gonna. So I think this is my favorite film noir i'm gonna go with out of the past for directed by jacques tonier we got robert mitchum we got kirk douglas we got jane greer Rhonda fleming it's it ticks all the boxes for me and it's got the all the all the stereotypical like all the things that are now cliche about film noir, film noir but that i love it's got the flashback stuff we've got the you know quarter like she walked into the room that that sort of thing mitchum is so cool in this movie and i, I might have another mitchum movie on my list later where he's not cool He's just scary. There's something about Mitchum where he could, you probably, you can, you can tell. Night of the Hunter. Yes. Yes. So now I can't talk about Night of the Hunter, but it's interesting to me that these two movies are like, he can be kind of charming and magnetic, or he can be kind of terrifying just with a little bit of a twist of a turn. Right. And uh, out of the past, I don't know. There's just so much that I love about it. And you've got the private eye, you've got double crosses, you've got, uh, the past will inevitably catch up with you wherever you are, which I'll, I like that, that theme, that, uh, that device. So, and it's a really well-loved movie uh, by a lot of people. And, you know, there are maybe more famous film noir, but I always tell people that's a good one to start with. What do you think about out of the past? Well, first of all, Robert Mitchum was one of the scariest human beings who ever walked the planet. Yeah. I mean, and he, you know, you, you mentioned blue collar and he, he was below blue collar in his background. He had a very, very rough background and he was pretty scary. I think on, on the sets, I don't think he was a bad guy. I just right. think that's just, just who he, you know, who he was. I'm not a huge fan of out of the past. Uh, I, I, you know, I like it. It's it's a watchable movie. My problem with that movie has to do with how it, it checks too many boxes. It it tries to be because you had you had in in hard boiled fiction, which is the which is what noir was in books in the 30s and 40s. You, you really had two schools. You had Hammett slash Chandler and you had James M. Cain. Hammett chat, you know, Hammett and Chandler are doing Private Eye, and James M. Cain is doing 
bad guy as doing murderers and thieves and as the, as the protagonist and the the hell that they get themselves pulled down into and out of the past tries to shuffle those decks mm-hmm. and, and i'm uncomfortable with that i i either you know and that's just maybe my you know my problem but it it's a private eye movie and it's a james mk movie and i'm like pick one <laughs> you know it's my yeah. problem with it but so it's on my it's certainly on my list i certainly own it and i certainly like it but for me it doesn't have and it's very it's very well regarded but it doesn't have, quite have have the purity of you know say the maltese falcon or something yeah. like that right yeah and i do you're one of the things you're going to notice on my list is that i'm a little bit that's that i think that might be my most mainstream well-regarded pick i tried to go well i can't uh, wait to hear the rest yeah because i you know i'm kind of a i'm kind of a i don't know what the word would be i'm just not say quirky yeah it's kinder than eccentric (laughs) i well i don't mind being eccentric i am definitely off the beaten path with a lot of this stuff okay what's your next uh what's your what's your number two we're definitely (laughs) in james m kane territory here okay gun crazy oh it's on my list all right. I love Gun Crazy. I and and it it it's funny because I fell in love with the with Bonnie and Clyde. I was going. I went to that movie over and over and over again, and I was mm-hmm. so obsessed with Bonnie and Clyde. We have an Iowa back. You know, Iowa was one of their stomping grounds, and so uh, I began looking at the other Bonnie and Clyde movies because there were any number that had been made in in in, in even the 30s and 40s. Uh, and you know things. There's a whole list of them. The 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 two bank robber women, uh, man, man and wife, who are on the road, or couple yeah. that are on the road. And I heard about Gun Crazy, and just kind of watched it as just on my list of Bonnie and Clyde movies I was gonna was going to see, and I was blown away by it. I now think it's superior to Bonnie and Clyde. I think it's the best uh, couple on the run movie I've ever seen because about, it's a love story. The, yeah. the guy really loves this woman. And I think she, in her way is her sociopath way. She loves him and they know exactly what road they're on. Uh, it, it, it's, it's there, there is a point in that movie, you know, where, where they try to break up, break off. One goes, go, goes in one direction. One goes in the other direction, knowing that's the only way they can survive. And they stop and they say the hell with it and they come back together mm-hmm. and it's you know that's that's the james m Kane kind of story at its purest and uh and the cast the, the, the you know you've got peggy cummins and john Dahl, who who was apparently he was not apparently he was gay and yet he what he brings to this and and i guess it she's kind of the male role in this mm-hmm. and and so that's a, a really interesting twist, but he he really loves her more than anybody I've ever seen love a woman in a movie. I mean, and I, I just love I, I love this movie. This is probably and what I don't want and the one place that has over Kiss Me Deadly and Kiss Me Deadly's only flaw and it is to me that there's not the humanity that's in something like Gun Crazy. Obviously, these these two do a lot of worse things than Ralph Meeker does in Kiss Me Deadly, and kiss and he does redeem himself by you see how much he cares about Velda, his secretary, when she gets kidnapped, but there's not a lot of heart 
in Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah. And there's a lot of heart in Gun Crazy, even though these are two absolutely reprehensible human beings. It's dark hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's natural born killers 40 something years earlier. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of There's a shot in that movie in Gun Crazy that I love. It's where you're, you're like, you're in the back seat. The camera's in the back seat of the car. You know what I'm talking about. And they're, yeah. you're behind them. You see the, like one uncut shot. They drive into town. He pulls up in front of the building. She gets out, goes in. He does like a loop and uh, circles back. She runs back out. Maybe he doesn't even do a loop. Maybe he just stays there. Anyway, she runs back out. The cops are on their tail. They hightail it out of town. They're on, the cops are chasing them. There's this high-speed chase. All one uncut shot. And, you know, like De Palma would do some of this stuff later using a little bit of trickery, you know, some digital edits that you don't necessarily see where they are. Sometimes he would do long tracking shots. But 1950, we're talking about 1950. It is such an impressive, like it puts you there in the middle of the action and you feel the stakes. And uh, it's it's incredible. I would recommend Eddie Muller's book on Gun Crazy. It's one of the, one of if not the best books on a single movie that I've ever seen. And uh, I believe he does talk in there about the fact that they did not have permission to do that shot. And because it was a run and gun kind of thing. Right. And the, the thing about, I love Joseph Lewis. He's one of my favorite directors. If I had a longer list, the big combo would definitely be on there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wouldn't be the only crime movie by him on that list. He, But he was somebody who was working kind of in the lower tier. When he broke through into Hollywood, his movies stopped being interesting. But when he was doing B-movies, he came up through Westerns. When he was doing B-movies, he did some of the greatest movies anybody ever made. And... And then he wound up a major TV director, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Uh, but I, I could not, uh, you know, I could not recommend more highly Gun Crazy and The Big Combo as as movies that are the and The Big Combo. What I mean, that's the epitome of film noir. So if track those tra track those movies down. Yeah, I think that Blu-ray of Gun Crazy that you held up has a documentary about film noir on it as well. I think done it by, does, yeah. Done by Warner Brothers. That's a good primer for people. See, Max, a lot of people that watch these videos haven't gotten into it yet. We're you know, a, a huge portion of my audience is just now discovering movies before 1970. So these videos are valuable in that sense. And that documentary will be valuable too. Well, I mean, we probably should say that, and, and I, I'm... I'm quite a bit older than you, and so much of my movie knowledge came from, you know, convincing my parents that I had, you know, I had measles so I could stay home and watch, you know, uh, Gun Crazy on TV. I mean, it, it was just what happened to be, you, you'd go to the TV guide and you'd look at the late shows and you'd just try to try to find the movies. and. It was it. There was a almost a collecting aspect to it, but you had no ability to record them. Yeah, and, you're recording it with your brain. Yeah, and, and so 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 you, a lot of who I am comes from me uh, seeking the literary version, the literary sources of the movies <laughs> I loved, and then seeing these movies of the of the 30s and 40s that were dumped on TV as just cannon fodder, kind of. Mm -hmm. And that's that's why you'll you'll see of my generation a lot of enthusiasm for Bogart and and even you know George Raft and certainly all of the the 
you know, Ava Gardner, uh, that was all big with, with, with guys that grew up in the 50s and even the early 60s before you had home video and you had cable channels. I mean, uh, we had, you know, three channels, started out two channels, and that was it. Yeah. That isn't very many. Um, all right, I'm going to go my number two. It's an Orson Welles movie. Which one do you think I went with? Well, it's got to be Touch of Evil. It's not, because I think that's the oh. one that most people would go with. I went from one that's more imperfect than that, but that I really love. I went with The, the Lady from Shanghai from 1947, because I love Rita Hayworth. I love Orson Welles. And it's, you know, he would go make these movies to fund the stuff that he really wanted to do. You know, he was like, I need some money, so I'm going to go make this movie. And out of this comes this movie that, it, again, it's imperfect, but I just love The Lady from Shanghai. And uh, Rita Hayworth had previously, like one year earlier, so this is 47, I think it was 46, uh, Gilda is 46. And it couldn't be more different from that. You know, she has this long, beautiful hair. Right. And, and The Lady from Shanghai, let's cut it off. Let's cut it off and dye it blonde. But there's just something dangerous about that movie, something that feels like a... I don't know. It just feels a little bit wild and reckless. And Orson Welles plays, he, so he plays like a, uh, like a mariner, like a seaman who gets, uh, he sees Rita Hayworth's character, who, by the way, they were married in real life at this time and pretty much dissolved around the right. time that this movie was over. Um, so there's that behind the scenes, you know, uh, how much of that are we seeing on the screen? But he's fascinated by this, you know, he's infatuated with her, he's attracted to her. And she's sort of a femme fatale character. And I'm not going to spoil the plot for anybody because you should watch it. But it has this, it has great dialogue. It, it Some people are going to say it's cheesy dialogue. I love the dialogue. I, I love the like, you know, and he's got this Irish accent that he delivers it in too. But um, so the the finale takes place like in, in, a, in a hall of mirrors. And some of the most iconic visuals of any film, not just of any movie in general. True. Um, True. It has always stuck with me. There, there are probably better technical movies, better stories or whatever, but there's just something about this movie. I always have loved it, and I, uh, I, I recommend everybody check out The Lady from Shanghai. It's not a kind movie to the literal-minded. It, it's, it, it, it's, You're just going to tear uh, apart all of my picks. No, it's a, real, it's a, it's a movie I like very much. Uh, and, and but there is this quality, and this is not a, ne a negative or even a positive observation. But on a lot of his movies, because uh, many of them were made just over a period of years, and he, you know, he he right. he fund them with roles he played in other people's movies. But more than anything, <laughs> Lady in Shanghai always has this feeling like someone's about to pull the tr plug on this production. You know, yeah. and, and and so there's a there's a nervous energy in the movie. Uh, there there's a it's it's not a slick movie, no. But it ha it has some. I mean, I think that's probably the classic film noir sequence, the sequence in the in the the house the hall of mirrors. Well, to uh, your point, Harry Cohn told Orson Welles, "I will never hire one person to write, produce, and direct again because I can't fire them." Yeah, yeah, it's telling. It, it has that. It has that kind of that kind of energy yeah but uh i don't feel like any when you get past uh citizen kane and uh the magnificent ambersons his movies have a very different feel mm -hmm. a very different feel and uh, i would call it uh 
you know, he was sort of like the prototypical independent filmmaker. I mean, he's, he, I, I really, I really sense him just like, uh, I'm just trying to stay ahead of the investors. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be a, um, you know, a, a brilliant, a, a brilliant person who peaks at 22 or 23. Right. That's awfully early to, you know, the, 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 un, the infant terrible, the infante, well, I don't know how you pronounce that in, in, in French, but he, he was a terrible infant. He was, he was a, a prodigy and there's nothing sort of sadder than a 40 year old prodigy. And, and, and he, he had, he carried that with him. So you, you, if you've probably seen that, uh, I know where there's an American Film Institute where they gave him a dinner and he actually got up and pitched for the other side of the wind. He was trying to raise money at his own yeah. career, you know, career dinner. But you could, everybody admired him in Hollywood and nobody would hire him. And there's, that's, there's reasons for it. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are reasons for it because you, you couldn't control him. And he, he, if he had an idea, he just would execute it. He didn't care whether you thought it had any merit. Mm -hmm. and I yeah. put him in one of my, he's in one of my books. He's in, uh, he's in Angel in Black, which is about the Black Dahlia slaying. And he was actually a suspect. Was did he really? Yeah, no, he I did not know that. Was, yeah, he, he, he was a suspect. So. Okay, what is your number three? Well, I'm going to be very conventional, but I have to say it's a Maltese, Maltese Falcon. I, and it looks so good on, you know, it's one of it a does. handful of things that Warner Brothers deigned to give us in their 100th anniversary. <laughs> but this this is really, seeing this in uh, in 4K is like, okay, yeah, 4K is for real. I mean, but it is, it is such an accurate, and you know the story, which is supposedly John Huston getting his first you know, he was a screenwriter getting his first directing job, gave, supposedly gave Hammett's novel to a secretary to just set it up for him to do his screenplay. And that got sent in and approved as a screenplay. And once it was approved, he didn't bother. He, he just shot the movie. There's only, I think, a couple of scenes that aren't in there, one of which is essentially a striptease that he couldn't put in. And so it's actually Hammett's dialogue delivered by by brilliant actors the an absolute a-list bunch of actors of the of the era and beautifully shot i mean it's it's the book comes to life yeah. uh, i uh, the mystery writer donnelly westlake who was actually a friend and a mentor of mine talked to me about something we had both done which is follow the movie along in the book which you just really can't do with very many books and movies. No, but we both had had done that. That was the thing that brought us together when we when we found out that we both had done that. That we both had followed the Maltese Falcon along uh, in the book. But you know that said, it isn't an incredibly noirish movie in the way it's shot. It's it's got style, but it's under very understated, and it's really the charisma of the actors and the faithfulness to Hammett, who wrote great dialogue. It, it really is a, a, a novel come to life. I knew you were going to pick the Maltese Falcons. So I wanted to talk about a Bogart film, but I wanted to go in a different direction. 
Okay. So I chose Dark Passage from 1947. Well, that's a good movie. People don't talk about it. It's like this secret little film. I mean, some people do, but it's. I feel like it's kind of a secret. Uh, it's Humphrey Bogart. It's uh, Lauren Bacall. They were married in real life at that time. And he is, a, a Bogey is framed for murder. He escapes prison and he has to prove his innocence. But here's the catch. So there's a catch. There's a twist. Um, he gets, so we don't see him for like the first reel or so. We're looking through his eyes. It's like first person and he goes for reconstructive surgery, like back alley budget reconstructive surgery to get a face, like a face, uh, facelift so that he could just escape long enough to prove his innocence. And uh, it's got this real interesting twist because of that, because I mean, you're, you don't see your star until well into the film. And I just like that, you know, that I like the idea of, plastic surgery i like the idea of okay you know it's it's a well-worn premise is i've got to prove my innocence that's nothing new but the way that it does it feels very unique i can't think of many other movies that have the same approach that this one does it's got a great um i don't even want to call it a supporting performance because she's barely in it but agnes moorhead is incredible in this movie and there's, there's your Bewitched. connection to there's your connection to uh uh to orson welles yeah he called her Aggie. Well, Aggie, Aggie was wonderful. Um, that, that's a good movie. That's a good choice. Uh, the the other movie that uh, uses that uh, first person camera that is in the noir canon is uh, obviously Robert Montgomery's uh, Lady in the Lake. But I don't think Lady in the Lake, while it's interesting, is anywhere near as successful as Dark Passage in part because Dark Passage doesn't make you sit through the whole movie without seeing the right, you know, seeing Comfrey Bogart or Robert Montgomery, and um, it also I should point out is based on a David Goodis novel. David Goodis being a really major cultish, uh, hard hard boiled noir paperback writer. Basically, he had some hardcovers, but so so the source material there is really really strong yeah uh, san francisco and, is a character in the film you know oh, a, lot very of much great, so. a lot of great noir has san francisco as a background uh there's really great uh art deco architecture in the film too um they use a specific apartment in san francisco that i believe you can still go see it's beautiful i just yeah, I, I, I can't i can't tell you exactly why but that movie and point blank really to me are uh the lee marvin movie John yeah. Borman directed it. They're 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 very similar to me, uh, and it is a guy out there. It is the man trying to redress wrongs committed mm -hmm. toward him, and that's and it's and and it is a San Francisco setting, yeah. so that's probably why it resonates with me. But I see those as a a, a duo that are worth revisiting. Mm -hmm. Okay, well let's we can pick up speed a little bit. What's your next one? Well, this is probably equally boring and uh, predictable, but uh, murder my sweet. Oh yeah, uh, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm a proponent of Dick Powell being the uh, definitive Philip Marlowe, Marlo, the one who is the most like the book, and uh, he, he he sums it up when he he lights a match off of uh, a statue of Cupid's ass and lights a cigarette up. That's everything you need to know about Philip Marlowe, and it's. Uh, a magnificent, overtly film noir, noir. I mean, they really were. 
they really were going for it in terms of uh, Edward Dimitrik had really, really went for the that kind of cinematography. And I love this movie. I love Powell, who was remaking his career. He had been a, a singer. And yeah, I mean, he yeah. was in Song and Dance Man. movies and he was relegated to being the, you know, the boy lead in Abbott and Costello movies. And he just said, no, let's do this project. Now, it isn't called Farewell, My Lovely, which I think is the best Raymond Chandler, uh, Philip Marlowe novel. Uh, they had to change the name to Murder, My Sweet, because they thought Farewell, My, Farewell, My Lovely might uh, sound too much like a Dick Powell musical. So they put Murder in, in the title. Uh, but that same cadence, Murder, mm -hmm. My Sweet, Farewell, yeah. My Lovely. Uh, and it has a great cast. The women are wonderful in this. Claire Trevor, uh, you know, Anne Shirley, and it's it's great. It's everything you everything you want from a Philip Marlowe movie. It's been a while since I've seen it, but doesn't it have that great stark cinematography with like the blinds, you know, the light shining through the blinds, creating Absolutely. these long shadows? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More so than the Maltese Falcon. Much this is much more overt. Uh, the only movie that's a little bit like it is is the Mitch and Farewell, My Lovely, which was a neo-noir. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about the two, those two movies, because uh, I showed them to my son one time. I said, I'm going to show you one, and the next night we're going to watch the other one. They leave, they, 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 each one has to leave some material out of the movie, out of, out of yeah. the book. And they leave different stuff out, which is fascinating. So, so the two movies really work sort of independently of each other very good uh i'm gonna go with uh, a similar warner what's well, available in warner archive the setup from 1949 directed by robert wise this has got robert ryan you're shaking your head is that a good no idea? i'm just i'm just shaking my head at what good taste you have oh okay um, that's a great movie that's it's fantastic great, great it's movie. it's 73 minutes long oh, and yeah. what does it need that it doesn't have you know it's, isn't uh, it? Uh, isn't it one of those movies that uh, is seventy-three consecutive minutes? It's. Do we go anywhere where we aren't? Is, you know, is it, is it seventy-three oh, minutes of time? Yeah, I'm, yeah. It's like a. It's like an episode of Twenty-Four, right? Like it takes place yeah. in in real time. Yeah. Uh, he's a boxer. Robert Ryan is a boxer who is just to give the brief premise for the audience to kind of if because maybe you haven't heard of it. Robert Ryan plays a boxer who's just, he's over the hill. He's not good at what he does anymore. And uh, his manager bets against him that he's going to take the fall. And, but he doesn't tell Robert Ryan. And so when Robert Ryan doesn't go down, there are these, basically the leg breakers that want to come for him. And so what I love about this movie is uh, the way that it builds the tension. You know, we start before the fights, you've got the fight huge auditorium full of people with the lights and the spectacle and the sound. And by the end of the movie, it's Robert Ryan alone in the auditorium being hunted. And who I'm telling you, it is Great. tense. It, yeah. it, well, it, you, you could build a case for Robert Ryan being the ultimate noir protagonist. You uh, could. He, yeah. he, because he could do heroes and he could do, villains and there was no real ch difference between them he mm -hmm. he did i would say he did rugged melancholy better than anybody so you 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 know he had that ruggedness you could imagine that he had been a soldier in combat but you also saw the humanity in this guy yeah and 
and he he was a a, a brilliant brilliant actor uh and he's in he's in some major ones i think it's number yeah i think it's number five now okay well most people i've talked about james m kane a little bit and i love james m kane he's one of my favorite writers and he he did die his dialogue is just amazing and everybody would would choose this double indemnity yeah and they they have every right to choose it because it's billy wilder chandler worked on the script it's fabulous but this this is what does it for me the postman oh. always rings twice the postman always rings twice was his first big success uh and double indemnity was kind of a knockoff he did because people wanted him to do something else similar and the th the difference between and why i like postman always rings twice more and i i know it's a more i think it was an mgm movie um you've you've got a love story in postman always rings twice it is like gun crazy it's these two people do love each other at a certain point they fall out of love each other with each other but they come back together they can't help it they can't they're they're on a they're on a collision course with themselves devil indemnity is about a bunch of venal assholes <laughs> and, and, and 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 i'm fine with that i i'm i can be very entertained by a movie like that yeah but he they aren't in love they might they, they're in lust right. and they're in greed and i yeah. i i like the tragedy i like the operatic nature and kane was a failed opera singer never forget that james m kane was a failed opera singer and that's why mildred pierce is the way it is and that's why postman always rings twice is the way it is and john that's to me john garfield and lana turner's finest hours she never looked more beautiful Few of us would not kill for this woman. I don't know if I can have any respect for anybody who wouldn't kill for this woman. And and Garfield is just absolutely at his tough. At his, again, he's another melancholy, like, like Ryan. He's the other rugged, melancholy man. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the uh, first line of that book. They threw me off the hay truck about noon. Look at the speed. It's yeah. just uh, I just love it, and so I do love this movie. Some people think it's a little flawed. Uh, that's fine, but uh, it it introduced me to Kane. It sent me reading Kane, and and that's important to me. With a lot of the that's with when you see when you see Farewell My Lovely on or Murder My Sweet on the list, and you see Maltese Falcon on the list. These are books that sent me into the literature. Mm -hmm and that was important obviously because that's the path i went down well i think these lists should be personal because that's what's going to differentiate you from the faceless here's the 10 noir you should see you know the, these ai put together things this should be a personal list and you should be able to explain why you connect with the stuff more than other things so i love that you should have been you should have been like me you pretended to have a stomach ache so you didn't have to go to church that sunday because mm -hmm. you knew that the maltese falcon was on yeah you know, you, you, you had to commit a crime to see these crime movies. <laughs> a crime but, against God. <laughs> against God. It doesn't get any worse I told that. My, I told when my mother, and I told my mother later, I said, trust me, God is everywhere. So he was in that room with me watching the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. God knows what a great movie this is. He knows that I needed to see it. He understands. Somebody yeah. put me on this path.
okay, so here's my number five. <clears throat> I don't feel like any list should. Okay, detour. 1945 oh, detour yeah. edgar g ulmer i mean come on this has some of the best dialogue you know it's super low budget too uh this is a sort of a study in low budget filmmaking um make i mean look you got you got tom neal you got ann savage they hated each other they did not get along all of that comes through on the screen you can tell these guys that you can tell they don't like each other there's a there's a story like he stuck his tongue in her ear is what I think happened. And then she slaps him and then they never, they never got along after that. But, um, it's a, it's a, a wonderfully written film that I love because it has a lot of anxiety in it. You know, I think noir. And when we talk about the B Westerns and that thin line between noir and Western at the time, they're drawing on world war two. They're also drawing on this fatalism and there's something in detour. It's like, if you make one bad choice and it's an understandable bad choice, you are one bad choice away from ruining your life. The dominoes will fall and you're screwed. So Tom Neal is a nightclub pianist. Who's on his way out to see his girlfriend and he gets the ride and like the ride doesn't go well. And, um, it stems from that. I, again, I don't want to spoil any of this for people that haven't seen it. Cause there's going to be people who haven't seen detour, but you like, you kind of understand why he does the things that he does. And then he ends up embroiled in the situation that is much bigger than him. And I want to read you some of the dialogue. Um, so money, you know what that is? The stuff you never have enough of little green things with George Washington's picture that men slave for commit crime for die for. The stuff that has caused more trouble in the world than anything else we ever invented, simply because there's too little of it. What what great dialogue. And then one of the, the, the most famous line in the movie, which is, that's life. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you up. Like, that's the fatalism. That's the, like, life will get you. And I think it has more power, you know, knowing, this is 1945. I mean, these guys have just come home from war. You know, I grew up when... Um, the Vietnam generation was coming back and like the entire 1980s was the Vietnam generation working their crap out in front of like in their art and in front of everything. Like, I think you grew up in the shadow of the world war two generation coming home and working through all their stuff. This movie feels so much like, uh, you know, we went to war things went, you know, we saw bad things and now it's like, it's infected every area of our life. I just love it. I think it's a wonderful film. Uh, and again, it's super low budget, $100,000 in 1945. That's a lot of money in 1945. It's not like that's, you know, 20 bucks, but uh, it just looks so much better than you think it should. And that's because of Edgar G. Ulmer, who was a really gifted director. Uh, I would reference people to The Black Cat, which is a horror film with uh, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, where Bela Lugosi skins Boris Karloff. Um, and... Uh, and, and a lot of other stuff too, but I, I don't, I've, I've not let you talk at all. What do you think about Detour? I love it. It's a great movie. Uh, Ulmer and Tom Neal are two of the most James M. Cain character uh, humans that could have gotten together on one project. You've got Ulmer, who basically, as I understand it, had an affair with a studio executive, his wife and got blackballed basically in, in, in Hollywood and had to work, was a, a gifted director who had to work in anything he could do, which he mm -hmm. did. And he had a huge long career, but he was, he was scrambling every, every day of his life. Yeah. 
And then you have Tom Neal, who was very much a second tier leading man who was now really sliding down the, the Hollywood ladder into nothing, who went on to have very much a James M. Cain, Postman Always Rings Twice existence with his girlfriend, Barbara Payton. And uh, they even toured in, in, in the play of Postman Always Rings Twice. I mean, it's just, you, you can't make this stuff up. And he has such sadness in his face that it's, it's almost unbearable to watch. Unlike most of the bad guys in, in film noir, the, the, the John Garfields and the, the Fred McMurray's, you can see how they could have gone in a better direction. They could have been the heroes. You look at Tom Neal, and there's not a hero in that guy. And it, it is an unusual, really unusual movie because you begin to wonder if any of it can be believed. It it it, it is like the the protagonist as unreliable narrator. Interesting. He just every, every he he because he's not to blame for anything. I'm not right. to blame for anything. It's just fate is just so mean to me. He, uh, yeah, yeah, but he strangles a woman with with a phone cord accidentally. It happens. Listen, it happens. Uh, yeah. You've never done and, that. And he picks up a hitchhiker and who accidentally gets killed. <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's all unlikely, and in it, it could be him sitting in a you know sitting in a a police station, explaining all these things that these horrible things that have happened to him. So I, I always view it as he's the unreliable, even though we're seeing it. Right. It's his version he's of the story. He's also narrating it. Yeah. So so I, I it's fabulous. It ought to be at anybody's top ten list of noirs. What a great what a that was great. You've given me a lot to think about. Uh did you want to do an honorable mention? Did you have one honorable mention? I love the real Nightmare Alley. And I I, I really this movie with Tyrone Power. I know I'm, I'm, but it's, it's incredible. I'm not a fan of the current version of it. Why is there I, a current, why did they remake that movie? The movie yeah, is the original. Toro, I like his movies. I like him generally, but I, I really felt that uh, Bradley Cooper was incredibly miscast. Um, this is, this is a wonder if you have, haven't ever seen Nightmare Alley, it is a ride. Uh, and it, it, People always talk about the fact that, well, they had to do a happy ending. Well, the happy ending is not that happy. If you really look at it, if you try to think about what's tomorrow yeah. in this situation, there ain't much of a tomorrow. If if you are reduced to being the geek at a <laughs> in a carnival show, mm -hmm. um, you're, 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 even when you clean up your act, your options aren't huge. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a very it really is a tragedy. It's there's some most of these are melodramas, really. Yeah, but I would say Nightmare Alley is a is is a tragedy, and it's a fantastic fantastic movie, fantastic book it came from, and and uh, it's beautifully directed Edmund Golding. Uh, it's just phenomenal. Should I do an honorable mention? Yes, please. <clears throat> All right, this is my last one. It's a Billy Wilder film, but it's not Double Indemnity. 1950, 
Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard to me is uh well for would you classify Sunset Boulevard as a film noir? I would. Yeah. I mean it's I got the a movie, a movie a movie narrated by a dead guy in black and white. Okay. I, I think it's no a noir. Yeah. I just love so much about it. You know, I'm in love with the idea of the golden age of Hollywood, of that classic Hollywood as it never really existed. Once you start to dig into it, you realize, well, you know, it's an idea. It's like Route 66, you know? I've driven Route 66. The reality is not what our mythology is. The mythology is untouchable, but it's not real. And I think that's the same thing for the golden age of Hollywood. And the Sunset Boulevard is in some ways the ultimate sort of, uh, the the ultimate, like the closing of the door, like a last word on, you know, a particular era of Hollywood because in the fifties yes. we're doing something else now. These movies, movies from the fifties look different than movies from the forties. And it's about, in case you haven't seen it, I want to just give you a little bit here. So, um, uh, Gloria Swanson, who was in real life, a silent film star plays a past her prime has been who does not come out of her house on sunset Boulevard does not, um, interact with, you know, but, but still believes that she is the star that everyone is waiting for to return to save Hollywood. She goes up to the Paramount gates and she says like, I, I built this studio or something like that. The studio wouldn't exist without me, which is interesting because, you know, she was an actual, it's multiple layers there. Cause she was an actual star in the, in the silence era. And you got William Holden who um, is uh, it, sort of a kept man i guess at some point yeah. in the film and uh there's just a lot of stuff there it it feels like i say this realizing that there are going to be a lot of people who view pre-1980 pre-1970 movies as being ancient you know as being absolutely untouchable like why would i watch that but in 1950 we're looking at the silence era going like well that was so long ago it's like in um singing in the rain when they're looking back at the silence era. And you're like, well, guys, it wasn't that long ago. You know, now we're 70 years. Well, hold on. See, 1929. There's a hundred, almost a hundred years ago is what we're talking about now. They were much closer to it then, but they're looking back at it with this wistfulness and this, you know, those were the golden days. Uh, I don't know. There's something melancholy that I can, like, it's beautiful. It's melancholic. It's dark. It's, uh, I, I just think it's wonderful. And it, it, there's an irony which is that Gloria Swanson did have a big hit movie as a sound movie in in you know I she did her her comeback was essentially successful yeah yeah and, and, and which is a because it is a celebration of that era it 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 shows the sad it, the sad side of things yeah uh you know all the all the people at the card game that all the directors and I think what is it Buster Keaton and and then of course von Stroheim is her butler yeah. von Stroheim and, yeah you know, no, it's it's a it, it's a great movie it's amazing because I grew up thinking Billy Wilder was the king of comedy mm -hmm. and didn't have this appreciation for what all he had done previously and uh I mean you you can look at some like it hot and see how much he you know he he liked the old crime movies i mean he brought mm -hmm. george raff back and i mean it's you know no uh, that that's a that's that's a great choice 
some of the things I that there are things that I almost talked about that we can talk about in the future, but I, I of all the crime movies I love, and I obviously love a lot of them, Anatomy of a Murder is I find incredibly rewatchable. It's one of those that if I started, I will finish it. Doesn't yeah. matter how many times I've seen it. But it doesn't and it, I don't know exactly why I reject it as a noir, whether it's just too 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 deep into the 50s because it's what is that a 59 movie or even 60 yeah and uh, you know so so i did not include that and i i wrestled with that one because i i love that movie that to me is the great courtroom film and it certainly has noir themes i do kind of adhere to the if it's after 1958 it's neo-noir um but uh, I don't know. It's easy if it's in color. If it's in color, that helps you. Yes. But when it's a black and white movie. Yeah. And then you, you see know. these movies from like 1962 and you're like, this feels like a film noir. And it, it essentially is. Why we put these boundaries on things, you know, I don't, I don't know that they do us any great benefit to, to lock in rules about what we can and can't do. But if we're going to talk about it again in the future, I'll have to revisit it before I could really speak about it. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about that movie because I think that's a really important one. Uh, Otto Preminger, who is a interesting and frustrating filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, if you can make <laughs> you can make Anatomy of a Murder and Skadoo. And be yeah. Mr. Freeze on the Batman series from 1966, right? Yeah. This is a good place to wrap this one up. Max, thank you so much. Tell people, we, we want them to go to maxallencollins.com. Tell people about that. Right, and the the uh, the book that's out right now is Too Many Bullets. Hold it up for the hold it up for the for the viewers that are watching the video version. I love this book. By yeah, the, way. the other thing that's out, and I just got nominated for uh, an Edgar for the 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 Spillane uh, documentary, uh, the book I did with Jim Trailer that is sort of the companion piece to my my documentary I did on Mickey, and then this is uh, this is Too Many Bullets, which is uh the rfk uh assassination as solved by by nathan heller my detective and we're doing a uh we're working on a podcast with uh, with rob burnett who, who's a friend of yours i know he's and a fan of you i know he likes your your work because he's told me that, that as much and uh rob rob and i uh are working on a uh adaptation of the first Nathan Heller novel for uh, for podcast and so that's in the, in the works and then late in the year when they get you get in a Christmassy mood come looking for Blue Christmas VCI has picked that up for for home video and MVD will be uh, distributing it so wonderful that's great news a, a lot going on I'm I'm not I'm not dead yet I'm I'm still breathing I'm still above ground and every time I talk to you, you're like, I'm wrapping up a book. I got to, uh, I'm, I'm going to be working on a book for the next week. I mean, you were constantly, constantly creating. And I admire that so much about you. My wife and I just sent in uh, a co the cozy book in the, in the Trash and Treasures series. That's called uh, Antiques Sleigh Bells. And sleigh is S-L-A-Y and bells is B-E-L-L-E-S. Oh, wow. So the, and, and that came out rather, rather good, I think. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah. Good fit for a lot of people that are watching this video because you're looking for mysteries. You're looking for things that, you know, crime stories. Uh, you got a lot of, you got a lot of, you got a lot of homework, but it's not homework. It's fun. This is a, this is what we do. We love this. Max, thank you so much. Uh, I want to do this again really soon.
Well, I, I, I'm always up for it, and I'm always up for watching Serial at Midnight because you never do a bad show. Oh, thank you. Guys, what is your uh, top five film noir? This is a great opportunity for us to share recommendations that might be off of people's radar and to uh i always like the comments of videos to be like the the hanging out at a video store when you're talking with friends and getting recommendations you know we don't really have that anymore this is kind of taking the place of that when you go to the video store and someone be like oh you checked out blah 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 let me recommend this to you uh we can be that for each other so i would encourage you to do that uh and thanks again for all that you guys do you know you have to thumbs up subscribe uh, and uh, we'll leave it there. But until next time, um, on behalf of Max and me, Serial at Midnight, we will catch you later.